This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Glenn Ford, along with my co-host, Nellie Bailey. Coming up, the Green Party will hold a national conference on eco-socialism this month in Chicago. The FBI's dreaded watch list is ruled unconstitutional in a federal court, and we'll hear about the method behind the madness of the whole arbitrary system of book banning in the U.S. prison gulag. But first, the rapper known as Jay-Z started out as a dope dealer in Brooklyn, went on to become a billionaire in the entertainment business, and was soon hobnobbing in circles of wealth and power. Jay-Z recently interjected himself into the controversy over football players that refused to honor the Star Spangled Banner anthem in protest of police killings of blacks. We spoke with Louis Jefferson, an activist from San Jose, California, who wrote a poem critical of Jay-Z that appeared in Black Agenda Report. It was titled, Anthem for Rappers Wrapped in the Flag. Some speculate that Jay-Z cut his deal to advise and provide entertainment services to the National Football League as part of a scheme to eventually own an NFL team. But Jefferson sees a larger political picture. So I think that with Jay-Z, I think it goes even deeper than him buying a team, uh, him co-opting the struggle. I think it goes deeper into the sense that our U.S. government is very much involved with imperialist acts throughout the world. And the NFL is a very, very large part of that imperialist interest or that imperialist aggression. And why I say that is that we have now a situation where we don't have a draft, but we have a volunteer army. And the way to get that volunteer army is to raise the appeal is to have people think that we have interests of war that will save the people and that the U.S. military will help our youth become educated and and become productive citizens and that you should join the military. A lot of that is being marketed through the NFL. And there has been a large sum of money from the government to support NFL activities on the sideline before games and during halftime and in commercials that promote the military. The military and the NFL were both in trouble based on Colin Kaepernick's stand against global oppression or against systemic oppression. It put systemic oppression on the map throughout the whole world for people to see that people in the United States are not happy with what's happening to Africans here in America and that it is being challenged by Africans on the sidelines on a weekly basis. So that disrupted what the NFL's plans were and what the military's plans were in our our U.S. government. So they needed someone in order to circumvent that, in order to cool down the flames of the people. As I said in my preface, that this is not a new act 
that the U.S. government does, but it was very old. Malcolm mentioned it as far as when he spoke so eloquently in the Ballad of a Bullet, where he says that, yes, when the acts become hot, they want to cool them down, or when it becomes too black, it needs to need some cream. And that's what happened, in that the brothers, the big black brothers of the NFL were standing up, and everybody saw it on nationwide television, and it needed some cream. It needed to be cooled down. And so they found what Jay-Z describes himself in his CD, Big Pimpin'. They decided to bring out the pimp to say, okay, we're going to pimp the movement. We're going to utilize the movement for self-aggrandizement, for self-monetary gain, and also help the U.S. military and help the government. And that's why I felt that we needed to have a deeper dive into the matter. Well, Jay-Z certainly has dived deep. He's trying to create an alliance and a business relationship. He's giving some degree of aid and comfort to a group of NFL owners who are possibly the most reactionary group of billionaires. And as a group, billionaires are pretty reactionary, but they are even, yeah. they stand out even in that crowd. Yes, indeed. And so, yes, we do have reports that Jay-Z was very cozy for a year. And, and this is what was not mentioned before with Mr. Fields, that there were about a, a year's going on meetings with the NFL owners, particularly Kraft, one of the head leading owners of the New England Patriots, who was a staunch Trump supporter and has been very vocal against Colin Kaepernick and the boycotts and protests. Jay-Z had been meeting with Kraft and then eventually was introduced to Goodell, who was the director, executive director of the NFL. So, yes, this is very much coming from the, the billionaire class who is very much in bed with U.S. imperialism for their marketing. But isn't there in the black community a strain historically and currently that sees any financial, political uplift, progress by any individual in the community as somehow rewriting historical wrongs that have been done to the community without regard for the other ramifications of those kinds of alliances or enterprises? Yes, that's a great question. And yes, I think that's one reason why Many of us that are on the left are split, even in that said. A lot of people would consider a person like me a hater for saying that, okay, Jay-Z is going to make a billion dollars, he's a billionaire, and that I am coming against that because I want a million dollars. But to me, I think that there is a moral high ground and there's moral capital that people are not seeing in that the objective of the struggle for liberation has or should not be for monetary gain only. It should be for the total liberation of the people. And in this sense, when you have the people mobilized in order to fight a struggle for liberation, to just provide capital to pacify the moment, destroys the movement for liberation. And so that's why a person like me, a person from the left in that sense, would challenge it. We're happy that when a person, an African, is able to uplift himself or uplift herself 
but we feel that it should be an uplift of all of us because all of us work and struggle to get us to the positions of which we are sitting at the table if we're sitting at the table. Yes, from a representationist standpoint, anytime you get a black person at a table from which black people had previously been excluded, that's considered progress. But that kind of thinking justifies, oh, the first black who becomes a major defense contractor or the first black president who goes ahead and one of the first things he does is invade an African country. Yes, indeed. And and I think, as I mentioned in the preface, in that Jay-Z and Barack Obama are two of a kind. One is that I found it amazing that Sean Carter or Jay-Z has in the beginning of or the inception of his business aspirations, they started off as selling drugs in the community, which was chemical warfare on our people. Everyone knows that the, the CIA has been very responsible for allowing and supplying the drugs and weapons in our community to destroy our families and our communities. And Jay-Z willfully participated in that. Yet, In that participation, he became high level in that particular occupation and channeled that into becoming a music mogul. Now, when you look at that, traditionally, when you have someone like that, normally a politician wouldn't want to be connected with that. Yet you can see now that not only Barack Obama praises Jay-Z constantly and openly, now he's cozying with Kamala Harris. He's also been very, very heavily involved in campaigning for the other imperialist hawk, Hillary Clinton. And so you look at that and you say, that's very, very odd in that, you know, you'd have to wonder, are they two of a kind working for the same entity? And I think the U.S. government working for the same entity to deceive the people. And as you can look at it, Barack Obama deceives the people, as you so eloquently have said, about bombing Libya and dismantling our chances of getting uh, full health care or what he has done with Hillary Clinton in Honduras and the proxy wars between Uganda and the Congo. I mean, he, he's been horrible for black people, but he's put out to black people so that the United States can open up things like AFRICOM and control African interests throughout the world. In your poem, you say, a rapper wrapped in the flag is a burned B-clot rag. And so I think you're saying that (laughs) (laughs) clearly you think that an artist, although an artist does have their privileges and should be given space, doesn't have the space to just dribble imperialism in our faces. Yes, yes, I I did say that. And I said it in a sense that our Jamaican brothers and sisters that say a bumba clock rag. So, so yeah, so uh, a rapper that wraps himself in the flag is somewhat insulting to the culture of rap itself because rap, as Chuck D would say, was the CNN of black people. And I don't want to call out CNN because I think that they are also (laughs) corporate sponsored mass media, but that's not what Chuck meant. But in saying that, the a rapper was in defiance. Most of uh, our hip-hop artists, the ones that we respect, are in defiance of U.S. imperialism, defiance of 
government control of Africans here in America and it really realize that most of their oppression has come from those government entities since our inception of coming to these shores by the hands of them. And so when Jay-Z and I see other rappers now buying into the billionaire class and perpetuating that through their music, we actually see a split in hip-hop itself where hip-hop is starting to have classes as well as becoming class-based just like our class struggle that we have throughout the world in that you have a class that is willing to bow down to imperialist interests or to corporate interests. And we have other hip hop artists that remain in liberation struggle and still put out a message to uplift the people in that manner. That's right. And in doing so, they sacrifice big major media contracts and therefore millions. Yes, they sacrifice major media contracts and millions. I mentioned in, in my preference also, we've read some work by a woman by the name of Juliana Spar. And in that work, she talks about, you know, how the, the CIA actually sponsored certain foundations. And in sponsoring those certain foundations, and, and, and she mentions that there were like 170 of them. And this was only during a period of time between the 70s and the 90s, but I'm sure there's many, many more, say this to say that they sponsor these organizations and these cultural foundations in order to co-op our culture. And, like, and not only our culture, any culture that was against imperialist interests or against the white supremacist hegemony of the planet. And when that happened, they would control the ideas of certain artists. and we feel that this could be in play with Jay-Z and some of what you see in the recent artists that joined that corporate class of hip-hop artists. The message about the anthem itself. The anthem itself, we feel that no one African descent or even First Nation descent should stand or acknowledge the anthem itself because the anthem itself attacks Africans directly. And when you look at some of Gerald Horn's work and you look at what the independence of the United States actually stood for in fighting a war to maintain slavery, not just from freedom from the British, but to maintain slavery, it's clear even in the lyrics that that is the case and that the protests opened that up for us as a people, Africans and First Nation people or anybody that's against imperialism, to address that to keep that conversation open. And I think that obscuring the message, even some of the people that are interviewed, obscures the message and says, okay, let's stop kneeling now. The protests are over. It's about getting financial stability. That really, really defeats our purpose and our moment. It's our moment, uh, us that are interested in liberation and interested in pushing the people into a position where they know all the issues that they are facing and work independently through themselves to change their conditions. We should keep this on the table. And we really thank the Black Agenda Report, Freedom Now, programs like that for keeping the real information there for the people so that they can make real decisions for their real liberation. That was Louis Jefferson, founder of the African Liberation Lab for Revolutionary Culture in San Jose, California.
The Green Party is gearing up for a national conference on eco-socialism to be held in Chicago September 28th. Anita Rios is co-chair of the Green Party National Committee. What we have put together is a conversation. It's a conversation with activists or among activists who are doing really exciting things in their communities to live the ideas of eco-socialism. For me, the notion of eco-socialism, and I would share with you that as a 65-year-old Latina, I have been in many movements and struggled to address many issues. And sometimes it's very hard to find a place where all of those issues come together. And I would say it's always very hard to do that. So when I think of this conference and this conversation about eco-socialism, I believe it's an opportunity for activists to come together from their very different perspectives and find a place where we can develop strategies and ideas for moving forward together. And despite the fact that some of those issues that some of those activists will be working on may not seem to coincide or may not seem to agree or may not seem to have very much in common, I think that there's an underlying notion of humanity and notion of fairness and notion of balance that I hope is central to this discussion. The Green Party's been an eco-socialist party since 2016, and 10 years before that, you introduced the Green New Deal. And it's difficult to imagine how the climate change challenge can be met with capitalists at the heights of the economy. Well, I think we have to acknowledge the fact that when we say we are capitalists, what we are saying is that money is the first thing, that money is the driving force, that money is the underlying motivation. And I think that as long as we do that, we will always miss the point. We will always ignore the fact that there is community and that there is value in community and that there is value in things other than money. Well, you've, of course, looked at the Green New Deal as put forward by members of the squad, as they call themselves, those young uh, freshman Democrats. How does it stand up to the Green New Deal as envisioned by the Green Party? It stands up as rhetoric. It stands up as yet another example of how Democrats can say a thing and mean nothing. But I would say that the whole notion of a Green New Deal, we we know where that came from. Part of it came from the notion of the New Deal that was put forward by Roosevelt. And as people of color, we also understand that for the most part, we were left out of that. And the encouraging thing for me is that the Green Party strives for diversity and the Green Party strives to reinterpret what has been done, and to reinterpret politics in such a way that it addresses real problems and real solutions to the problems that people in my Latinx community face every day. So I think that the Green New Deal segueing into an eco-socialist agenda is the only path to take 
in order to be truly inclusive of all the various populations in this country and in the world and to find real solutions to the problems that we face. And that's solutions that are not motivated by how do we preserve the capitalist notions of profit, but rather how do we preserve and nurture communities. You're an activist, and you say you want to address the politics of people that you describe are in America, but living or trapped in a kind of third world. Do you think the Green Party is representative of those kinds of Americans? I absolutely do. I have been a Green since 2000, and I came into the Green Party kind of out of desperation because I had of course, lived in poverty for a very long time, but I had also come out of poverty. And I was doing social work and organizing and working with really threatened communities. And I was also a union organizer. I was the head of the union in my shop, a union steward with SEIU 1199. And I was negotiating contracts. And as I was negotiating contracts, for the workers, those contracts were getting worse and worse. And at the same time, the services we were providing to the community were getting worse and worse as well. And the people that I worked with, the managers and the administration, they were not getting wealthy either. So at some point I looked at, okay, so where does the money go and who made these decisions? And I have to say that that search was informed by my own experience as an activist prior to that and as a poor person in America. So it occurred to me that somebody is making political decisions for me, for my community, without consulting me and without considering me. So when I found the Green Party, what I found was a bunch of people asking those same questions and making those same challenges. And a lot of people criticize the Green Party for many, many things. But what they don't realize is the Green Party is truly, truly grassroots. We are ordinary people who give an awful lot of ourselves to invent a new way of doing politics that addresses our needs. So, yes, I do think that the Green Party is ideally suited to address these issues. And what's exciting to you about this eco-socialist Green Party meeting that's coming up in Chicago? Well, one thing I want to talk a little bit about one of the presentations or part of the presentation, one of the speakers that will be there, and that is a, a young woman from here in my hometown of Toledo, Ohio. Her name is Marky Miller, and she worked on a piece of legislation called the Lake Erie Bill of Rights that was passed by the citizens of Toledo to hold polluters responsible for polluting the lake. And in case you were not aware, here in 2014 in Toledo, Ohio, for three days we were not allowed to drink our water. We were told not to even touch the water because it was so contaminated with blue-green algae that had grown because of pollutants that had been pouring into the lake. And that had been happening for a very long time, and it's happening now, frankly. But out of that crisis came some activism. And one of the things that some of the people here in Toledo decided was that we have to endow this lake with rights, that the lake has a right to remain clean and that we can secure 
our drinking water by securing rights for the lake. So that was what the Lake Erie Bill of Rights was all about. And it was a groundbreaking piece of legislation that a bunch of grassroots volunteers headed up by Marky Miller, who are young people new to politics, involved in politics because of, what, a fire in their belly and seeing a need for real change and coming up with a really innovative solution. So she's going to be there and she's going to be talking about what they did to get the Lake Erie Bill of Rights passed. And this meeting has a focus on worker-owned cooperatives, which you see as important to building socialism in the U.S., Absolutely. And, you know, that's building socialism not as a theory, but as a model for what communities can be, as a model for how workers themselves can address the needs of their communities and create products or even perform services in such a way that nourishes the community, maintains the community, and also nourishes and maintains and empowers workers. So I think that we have to get away from the notion that money is the only end result and that if we make money the top priority, everything else gets sorted out. But that completely ignores the fact that communities and human beings are meaningful and that our economic system serves us. We don't serve the economic system. And if the economic system of capitalism ceases to serve us, then we will cease to use that and we will find economic systems such as socialism that actually serve our needs. As an activist, you know that electoral politics isn't everything, even for the Green Party. But this is an election season, and you'll be in the midst of that season in September. So will we see electioneering geared towards the 2020 contest at that Green Party meeting? That is certainly not the focus of this meeting, but... Greens are interested in politics, and they are interested in politics for some very sincere and heartfelt reasons. So I would be surprised if people put aside all of those political ideas and leanings during this conference, but that is certainly not the goal of of this conference. The goal is to have a conversation about issues and strategies that we can all employ to make our communities better. And, of course, part of that strategy will be a political strategy. And you will have your presidential candidates and others present at that meeting. Yes, we will. We will have some of them. I don't know if we will have all of them, and that's certainly not our intention. I have to be very clear about that. This is not a Green Party per se official forum. It is a forum put together by Greens who felt that there was a need to have this conversation, but it's not officially sanctioned by the Green Party National Committee, and it's not an actual campaign forum. If the Green Party has been eco-socialist for the last three years, what's the specific reason for having a meeting, a gathering on eco-socialism now? Because we always have more to address and more to discuss. And I think that 
the notion of eco-socialism isn't one static thing. It's over these years, many issues have come up that I am sure we want to frame under that eco-socialist banner. And I think that this is something fairly new that we are all exploring and strategizing about, and this will be a continuation of that. So I just want to stress that I think to say eco-socialism means we will be searching for answers. We will be constantly revising and constantly revisiting and constantly living as I think it's necessary for humanity to do. That was Anita Rios of the Green Party. Black Agenda Report Executive Editor Glenn Ford says the United States is always making lists of nations to make war against or people to silence and incarcerate. A federal judge has ruled that the FBI's watch list violates the constitutional rights of U.S. citizens. The watch list contains the names of more than a million people that the FBI describes as known or suspected terrorists, including about 4,600 Americans. The watch list is different than the no-fly list, which was declared unconstitutional and then modified back in 2014. The latest legal action was brought by 23 Muslim Americans, whose names are on the watch list. The federal judge ruled that there was no evidence or even a contention that any of these plaintiffs satisfy the definition of a known terrorist. The judge remarked on the arbitrariness of the FBI's list makers. An individual's placement into the watch list, he said, does not require any evidence that the person engaged in criminal activity or committed a crime or will commit a crime in the future. In other words, although the judge didn't say so, the FBI watch list is totally political and these days heavily anti-Muslim. The FBI is America's secret political police, and political police are all about making lists. The bureaucratic name for the FBI's watch list is the Terrorist Screening Database. So, even if you have never committed a crime in your life, the airport and border security agents that you encounter will assume that you are terrorist-minded. And who can blame them? You're on the list. Dave Lindorf is an award-winning journalist who hasn't been arrested since an anti-war demonstration back in 1967, but he's been waylaid twice in the past two months at airports in Great Britain because he's on the FBI's list. I was briefly detained at an airport in Canada on my last trip there. The young security agent smiled broadly as he told me that his computer screen told him all about me. He knew what my nickname was when I was a teenager, more than half a century ago, an old slice of my own life that I'd forgotten. But Big Brother remembers everything, and he wants you to know that it's all written down or stored in one of his digital clouds for use at a time of the secret police's choosing. Dave Lindorf wrote an article in The Nation about his recent experiences as a suspected terrorist. The title of the piece asks if terrorism watch lists are expanding under President Trump. 
The article doesn't provide an answer to that question, but it does encourage those who claim that Trump is some kind of unique fascist threat. The truth is, the U.S. national security state is a bipartisan monster, created and coddled by both corporate parties. The United States has always had an enemies list. At one time, it included every slave that wanted to be free and every Native American that insisted this land still belonged to his people. Donald Trump is certainly a Muslim basher, but he does it to get votes, and a majority of white Americans are quite all right with his Islamophobia. An indictment of Trump is an indictment of a majority of white people in the U.S. who support Trump because of his racism. Would it be un-American then to say that most white people in this country are racist and that America's so-called values are those of a white settler colony? The FBI certainly thinks so, and they've got a black identity extremist list to prove it. Actually, the FBI claims it's gotten rid of the black identity extremist designation, but you can be sure that the list continues to exist under some other bureaucratic heading. They never get rid of the lists. That was Bar Executive Editor Glenn Ford. Prisons are constantly banning the books and periodicals that inmates are allowed to read for what seems like the most arbitrary of reasons and often with no explanation at all. Many activists make the comparison with slavery when it was a crime for enslaved people to read. We spoke with Brittany Friedman, a professor of sociology at Rutgers University, specializing in criminal justice. I think it is relevant because the very logic and modes of operation, if you will, of how to confine a person in a carceral sense where it is not only the body, but it is in the mind, that comes from the very way that slavery was enacted on the body and practiced. And so that system as a model is very explicitly in the, in the early prison forms, it serves as a model for that way of institutionalizing carcerality. And you can't do that without preventing people from connecting to their humanity through learning, through exploring their interests, through connecting with others, through discussion. And so the connection to slavery is definitely not overstated because it is the very same innovation being put to work in the prison form where the confinement is in terms of walls and in, in many cases, actual change as well. Well, the federal court says that prisoners are, unlike slaves, they do have a right to read. But prisons interpret that very differently. Yes, and it is because there's a tension between the constitutional right to read, right? It's protected in, actually, in, in the First Amendment. The federal courts have repeatedly affirmed that prisoners have a right to read and publishers have a right to send them reading materials. But then the catch is that those rights can be restricted in the, in the interest of security. And that's coming also from various lawsuits and appeals of these suits where the courts are deciding, well, what does in the interest of security mean? 
And in, in the contemporary age, we really see this building off the momentum of the prison movement as a way of curtailing the First Amendment by using the language of correctional discretion, because it's so broad. It's such a broad brush that you are essentially allowing those who are at the top of the power asymmetry to define what is inherently dangerous. And so it's in many ways, it's giving the the power to label is always going to prevent any sort of supposed constitutional right for anything. Have any of these prison officials defined what inherently dangerous means? What books are they talking about? So it varies by state. There's actually a really, really great list that's pretty comprehensive. It's on bookstoprisoners.net. And you can see a list of banned books by state. And one of the goals that I actually have is I would love to do a comparison across these lists. It see how it varies in terms of is it does it relate to the incarceration history in terms of the timing of the speed of mass incarceration for states. So for instance, states like California, who serve as a, a penal model, right, for draconian policies and disproportionate enactment of them, is actually also one of the most punitive in terms of deciding which books are banned. And so some examples are for in in California, Game of Thrones is banned. There's no real explanation for it. You can only infer that perhaps because officials think it has something to do with gaming and strategy. Then it then it could range from from things all the way to books that would be on Oprah's book club are banned, but there's no real explanation. And this is because the courts do not have any guidelines in place where correctional systems actually have to provide a logical explanation. They can just put it on the list and say that it was determined to meet the criteria that we use (laughs) by which a publication is deemed dangerous. And so there's a level of secrecy, too, that is self-serving, right, for the institution. It makes it self-justifying if you actually can't peer behind the justification. Now, that seems to be treating the world of the prison as a separate world. There's a very high constitutional bar that people who want to ban speech or ban what kind of information can be dispersed out here in the outer world. People who want to enact such bans have to be very specific about why they want to do that. But you're telling me that in prison, they don't have to explain. Exactly. I think that we see that for a a whole host of policies, right? And, And what is defined as prison management policies in terms of thinking through how do we coerce a certain outcome But in reality, it's social control 101. Calling it management is a euphemism. And if you think of it as social control, then you can actually get at the root for why there's no justification necessary. There's no justification because the basic premise is that the institution owns you, the prisoner, and so they don't have to provide you an explanation if you are a number of the state. And so using the language of discretion and using the language of security, institutional safety, it allows systems to enact policies that amount to basically abuses of power, right? It's in the criminological sense, if you're going to take a critical eye to the criminal justice system, then you would say that they are enacting crimes of the powerful. 
by wielding such a broad brush that can, for instance, books like The Color Purple are banned. And there's not a real explanation, but if someone protests it and files an affidavit saying, why that book? In many systems, the answer is, oh, well, The Color Purple has, you know, sexual explicit themes. And it's like, oh, so that's going to be singled out for that. But it doesn't actually really pan out in the sense of the rule against sexual content was intended for pornography. It wasn't intended to be used as a weapon of preventing reading books like The Color Purple, right? And so then that gets at the heart of the real purpose, and the purpose is control. That's the only purpose is control and dispossession. The purpose is not rehabilitation, and the purpose is not to prevent, quote-unquote, recidivism. In many ways, that it's a cruel joke. And I think looking at the banning of books makes that very clear. Prison reform has been discussed endlessly, especially in recent years, and yet we don't have any clear exploration of what prisoners' constitutional rights are. This is true. And I think that a very influential federal law that relates to this is the Prison Litigation Reform Act. This act was enacted in 1996. And this was because of the significant increase of prisoner litigation in the federal courts over the last 30 years, which we, you know, account for in a broad terminology as the prison movement. And in my opinion, and also in the uh, historical literature on this, it does show that this act, the PLRA, was intended to essentially just hand the discretion back to correctional elite and take it away from prisoners in terms of filing affidavits, filing writs, and pursuing actual lawsuits. And many of these lawsuits are about free speech, right? So we know this in terms of early organizers in the prison movement. The Nation of Islam is often cited as one of the first to pursue the freedom of speech, freedom of religion. And in many of these lawsuits, you do see the subject of literature, right? What can we actually read? And that comes up time and time again in these prisoner lawsuits. And so this act in 1996 significantly reduced the number of suits to challenge issues such as the right to read certain books, the right to read in general in prison. And it's because one of the main tricks in the act is that prisoners must exhaust all administrative ways that they can solve their grievance. And administrative is really a euphemism for basically they must go through the prisoner grievance system that is set up by the actual correctional system that is abusing them. And so it's basically, it's like asking a victim to go to the perpetrator and say, this is the case against you. I need you to approve it. And that's what the law does. And because of that, Cases with an insurmountable amount of evidence against an institution, even in the case of lawsuits trying to restore the First Amendment, you see that cases can be thrown out quickly because the judge can simply say, oh, well, you basically, you forgot to do this one step in the grievance process. And because of that, you did not meet the exhaustion requirement of this law. And so because of that, we no longer can hear this case. It just produces an insurmountable, inequitable burden on prisoners to remedy their own situation within the confines of the system that created the situation. 
So effectively, corrections departments have demanded and largely gotten the right to be the arbiter of what prisoners can see and read. Exactly. And I I would cite that this law is really the hammer slamming down on litigation, trying to disrupt this abuse of power in terms of what and how someone can engage with literature. And I, I would like to emphasize, too, that this law, the reason it's so damaging and there's so, and so many activists still trying to get it revised is that it's not just books, right? It's that there's even cases in states in the juvenile system where people have pursued lawsuits and with evidence, for instance, that they were abused either sexually or various physical ways, right? by the system or as a result of neglect of the system, but because they didn't, quote, exhaust the administrative remedies in the institution itself, their case is thrown out. And so that is why this law, its books and the right to read and the banning of books are only one piece of the puzzle in terms of giving total control to the institution to decide essentially what you would consider as the life and death and the means by which people live and die behind bars. Yes, given that there probably are no enlightened prison systems in the United States, which is the world capital of imprisonment, which systems are more rational? Well, I think that rational is a tricky word because the bureaucratic administration of control is in and of itself in our, quote, modern society considered rational. So even what California is doing is considered rational. If you use the logic of institutional safety, then they have the sovereign right, according to a rational system, to decide what is safe. But if we're thinking of it on a spectrum, I would say, for instance, states like New Hampshire. States like New Hampshire, the list of books that are banned is significantly less than California. Also, New Hampshire doesn't have the same correctional history. As California, which is getting to my point of looking at the larger incarceration landscape and the incarceration history or geography to understand where the logics of banning is coming from. So places like New Hampshire, for instance, if you look at the list, many of the books are books that you might expect to be banned if we are operating under the, the sense that Prison systems are going to disproportionately target those that they see as promoting any sort of resistance, right? So books like Jailhouse Strong is on the New Hampshire list or Blood in the Water by Heather Ann Thompson or these sorts of books are on the list. And then a very clear reason is listed next to it. So, for instance, for Heather Ann Thompson for Blood in the Water, it says reason for rejection, security concerns encourage group disruption. But if we're looking at the California list, for instance, a book that is banned, it says art, a world history. When you look to see what is the reason, there's no reason given except for that each publication on this list was determined to meet the criteria of CCR section 3134.1 on a case-by-case basis. And so that gets to my point of California you could probably measure them on a spectrum of being more draconian than New Hampshire because of the level of discretion that they are wielding 
and also the level of transparency. There's no real reason given. It's just a, a citation of a, a very general law that says that the institution has discretion versus New Hampshire actually has a table of banned books that's much shorter, but it also has an entire column listing reasons for each book. And almost every book either has a reason where it says sexually explicit, could be causing or encouraging disruption, or security threat groups. And so it does speak to, I wouldn't say rationale, I guess I I think it has something to do with the larger incarceration history of that state and the larger history of what Nicole Van Cleve calls in her book, racial degradation would be a better term for it. State where the connection is so explicit in terms of how the incarceration landscape grew, such as California, in a very reactionary way, you would expect the definition of rational to be much more broad and encompassing because it needs to be when you are trying to institutionalize such a draconian level of control. You need a broad brush to do that. Whereas in New Hampshire, not to downplay it, but I would argue that you don't necessarily have an analogous mass incarceration history. And that's what you were referring to when you were talking about the geography of prisons. And by that, we would expect that Mississippi, Louisiana, the Deep South states would have the most arbitrary and draconian reading regulations. Yes, I would say that you would expect states with a history of Jim Crow, but also looking at California, states with a history of heavy, violent reactions to the Great Migration. So that broadens what we are thinking about in terms of, of Jim Crow, right? We're, think, we're thinking about the, um, I hate to call it the new Jim Crow, but if we think of it in that way, then it allows us to more clearly see the connections between the state, the likely offenders, right? The Deep South, or even, I would say, uh, parts of the Midwest, and also places like California, where it does have this very reactionary history to the Great Migration and people trying to flee Jim Crow, only to be re-enslaved in not even new, but revised modes of operation. And how has Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, been succeeding in penetrating the prison walls? Absolutely not. It's like expecting revolutionary suicide to not be on the list. Huey Newton's book, of course. Yes. So you do see some cases of programs that have been able to make inroads in providing reading material to prisoners where books such as The New Jim Crow have made it in, but only very, I'm saying this anecdotally, because they're still officially banned. So an example I could say is not even just The New Jim Crow, but for example, there's a Seattle nonprofit called Books to Prisoners, and the Washington Department of Corrections issued a new policy that banned nonprofit organizations from donating used books to prisoners, but also another interpretation of this is preventing nonprofits from hosting reading groups with prisoners. And the function of, of this sort of ban on nonprofit involvement is because it's trying to ban education programs that might be able to get certain books temporarily allowed. And so that could be a way that a book like 
the new Jim Crow could make it into the system, even if it is banned. But by banning nonprofits or out, basically banning outsiders from coming in with material and applying to have certain materials approved for a very small group setting, by banning that, then it's tightening the reins even more because it's sort of a recognition that, okay, this is a way to, to start subverting the system. And so we need to block the free flow of ideas by blocking flow of outsiders coming into the prison. So it's hard to separate the book banning from a policy to perpetually isolate prisoners. Exactly. It deeply relies on the premise of isolation. It's isolation with the end goal of dispossession. It's dispossessing one, a person, from their humanity and relegating them to the status of an inmate. And the only way that you can do that is through isolation tactics that then dispossess and cause the separation. I mean, that's the very heart of confinement. And that is a link that I alluded to at the beginning when talking about the connections to slavery in terms of the banning of education and books. It's the need to create this dispossessed formation of the person, the mind, and creating the object. And it, we've shown, I mean, that this is the way to do it. That was Professor Brittany Friedman speaking from Rutgers University. Dante Mitchell is a prisoner of the state of New York. He sees a great contradiction in the whole mass incarceration system. Last week, I was in my aggression replacement training ART program that the New York State Department of Corrections and Community Supervision mandates certain prisoners to take, regardless if we need it or not. The program is largely ineffective in this prison setting. Guys take it only because they have to. But when we're surrounded by violence and aggressive prisoners and prison guards, how effective can aggressive replacement training be? Many of these prison guards need such training themselves. I want to read a poem I ironically got in my ART class. It's not a part of the official curriculum, but it explains the great contradiction of prison. The poem is entitled just that, quote, the great contradiction, end quote. We want them to be responsible, so we take them away all responsibility. We want them to be positive and constructive, so we degrade them and make them useless. We want them to be trustworthy, so we put them where there is no trust. We want them to be nonviolent, so we put them where violence is all around them. We want them to be kind and loving, so we subject them to hatred and cruelty. We want them to quit being the tough guy, so we put them where the tough guy is respected. We want them to quit exploiting us, so we put them where they exploit each other. We want them to take control of their lives, so we make them totally dependent on us. We want them to be a part of our community, so we isolate them from our community. We want them to have self-worth, so we destroy their self-worth. We want them to be merciful and empathetic people, so we judge them to the fullest extent of the law. We want them to become healthy human beings, so we cage and treat them like animals. We want them empowered and employable, so we remove their higher education possibilities. I mean, really, what more can we ask of them? That's the end of the poem. This is Dante S. Mitchell, better known as the Foul Mr. Kibu, reporting to you from Great Meadow Correctional Facility in Comstock, New York. Follow me on Facebook at Free Dante Mitchell. Thank you for listening, and God bless. 
These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. And that's it for this edition of Black Agenda Radio. Be sure to visit us at blackagendareport.com where you will find a new and provocative issue each Wednesday. That's www.blackagendareport.com. It's the place for news, commentary, and analysis from the black left. I'm Nellie Bailey, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Our thanks to the good people at the Progressive Radio Network.